Maybe I should try it again with the microphone on. Good morning. Yes. It's really a privilege to be here. I'm thankful to Will uh, for asking me to come. I want you to just turn to Mark chapter 6. What we're going to do today is continue in our study through Mark and uh, look at a couple of passages, two, three passages uh, in Mark chapter 6. See what, if anything, they have to say uh, to us the way we live uh, and, and how we live our lives today. So uh, we're going to take it just a passage at a time as we work our way through it. I want to begin in Mark chapter 6 in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. That's kind of an introduction to this section uh, of the letter of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And so I want to take just a moment to kind of give us some context to this. We're going to read about Jesus going into his hometown to to Nazareth, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But I think before we do that, we need to kind of understand, uh, it says he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. That kind of leads me to the question of he went away from where, what are we talking about there? So I want to kind of give you really a quick breeze through of the first five chapters of Mark in terms of, of what Mark is presenting to his readers. And that, when I think about, uh, I don't know about y'all, I grew up reading the Bible and, and going to church and hearing sermons on sometimes one verse, sometimes short passages, um, almost never really getting the idea that there was a consistent theme that ran all the way through the scriptures or all the way through a particular um, book in the scriptures. So what we're looking at today is Mark, and Mark is, he, he wrote a gospel that, and Will's talked about it, he uses the word immediately all the time. And Mark had a very definite purpose when he wrote uh, this particular gospel, and that purpose was to present Jesus as the Son of God to his readers, which includes who? That's right. Say that out loud again. That includes us, right? So this was written very much for us as his readers. He wanted to present Jesus to us as the Son of God. So let's just look and see. Mark begins his book by telling his readers what his very purpose and theme was. was, And then Mark chapter 1, beginning of the gospel, the good news. And my translation says of, but I like the word concerning. And that's the, the same idea, right? The good news concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His theme is the good news about Jesus Christ, who is God's anointed king and son. His purpose for writing this book that we call Mark and that we looked at it is for us to um, understand who Jesus was and for that to have some impact on who we are and how we live. So when we look at what we've studied so far, Mark, and I think we've been in it five or six weeks now uh, up to this point, What we see primarily is Jesus in the region of Galilee, not in Jerusalem per se, but out in the region of Galilee, and he's going from village to village and town to town and uh, proclaiming the message that he preached. So what we see is Jesus was proclaiming the gospel, which again is the good news from God. Mark tells us what he said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. We see Jesus calling disciples to follow him. We see him teaching with great authority. 
He has probably already, uh, at this point, taught the Sermon on the Mount, which many consider his greatest sermon, but there's tremendous authority in the teaching that Jesus was given. We saw a few weeks ago uh, where he talked about the parables that, that um, Will uh, taught us about, and in particular the parable of the soils, one of the biggest parables and most important ones that we find in the Gospels. So he's been calling disciples to himself. He's been teaching with great authority. He's been demonstrating his authority by commanding and casting out unclean spirits or demons, uh, uh, and they even acknowledged who he was the Holy One of God. He's healed many who are sick with all kinds of diseases. He's cleansed lepers. We see him forgiving sin, and not only forgiving sin, demonstrating his authority to forgive sin by healing a paralytic. We've seen Jesus declaring that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he demonstrated his right to declare that he was the Lord of the Sabbath by healing a lame man on the Sabbath. We see Jesus confronting and rebuking the religious leaders and Pharisees of his day. Again, I said we see him teaching to large crowds. He's teaching with great wisdom, great authority, and he's teaching with authority about the kingdom of God. We also see Jesus commanding the wind and the sea to be still and at peace. And we see the wind and the sea obeying him immediately. We see Jesus commanding and casting out a legion of demons. That, that idea is like a thousand demons out of one person. The, the legion of demons. We have seen Jesus presented through Mark's gospel, demonstrating who he is, not only by what he said, but by what he does. We've seen even in Mark chapter 5, just last week, power flowing out from Jesus when his garment was touched by the woman who had been suffering for 12 years. Remember, she touched the hem of his garment, and she's healed. And Jesus said, I know that someone touched me. Why did that power happen? He asked about that. So we see that the power that is in him, and we learned from Jesus, right? He said to her, your faith has made you well. When she reached out and touched his garment, her faith had made her well. All of what Mark has presented so far in his gospel culminates uh, in chapter 5 with this encounter with Jairus, the synagogue ruler whose daughter was very ill, who went to Jesus to see uh, if he would heal his daughter. While there, Jairus is informed that his daughter is dead. Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. Only believe in Jesus, right, in himself. And then Jesus demonstrates his power over death by bringing that child back to life. So what we've seen is Mark describing the early portion of Jesus' ministry, We've seen Jesus drawing great crowds to himself. There's a tremendous excitement around the region of Galilee because this miracle worker, this great teacher, this man with all this great authority is there. And the scriptures tell us, and Mark tells us, people were coming from all over the area, from Judea and Jerusalem, from Galilee, from everywhere that they could come within the area 
to come and see and hear this man teach. He was, in the terms that we use today, in that sense, the celebrity of the moment. Everybody was very much enthralled by him uh, and wanted to be close and to hear what he was saying at that time. So Mark then takes us to Jesus's hometown. That's where we pick up again in uh, chapter 6. So he went away from there where he had just healed or brought back to life this, this girl that had died, right? He comes to his hometown, which is Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And then beginning in verse 2, it says, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went away among the villages teaching. Most of us in in, in this day and age, uh, we think about if you're going to campaign for something or you want to uh, have a great influence on people, you usually launch that campaign where? In your hometown, where people know you, where people think the world of you, where that is your strength. And we'd see that Jesus didn't necessarily, and he did not launch his ministry in his hometown. He has been out going throughout the region. We know he's been in Jerusalem already. We know he's already uh, taught some in Jerusalem, done some miracles. The first miracle that he did in Galilee was done in Cana, where he turned the water into wine, not in his hometown. But he's performed all these great miracles. He's done all this great teaching. And he comes to his hometown. And what does his hometown do? They take offense at him. Now, this is just kind of the way I think. I think, why? Why would the people in his hometown have taken offense? Now, if you went to my hometown and to my family where I was raised... And I was saying that I was the Lord of the Sabbath and that I could heal the dead and I could teach with great authority. My siblings, my parents even, would say, uh-uh, that's not right. Because you know what? They knew me. Uh, they know what I was like, who I was, what I said and what I shouldn't have said and what I did and what I shouldn't have did. And they would say, he's lying. But when we look at Jesus' hometown... They could not do that. This was not a questioning or taking offense because Jesus had been a sinful young man who rebelled against his parents or because he'd done all kinds of bad things as a young man. In fact, the only thing that we really know about Jesus' childhood is that as he grew up, people respected him. He grew in the favor of men and of God. There was no sin in his life to make the people of his hometown think, no, this guy's a liar. He's not truly the Messiah. That was not there. 
So I just kind of wonder in my mind, why? Why did they take offense at him? And what even does that mean that they took offense at him? So what I want to do is just turn over to Luke chapter 4 for just a moment, and we'll look at this same um, event when Jesus came into his hometown, and we'll look a little bit at how Luke described it, because Luke gives us some additional details. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, Luke tells us what Jesus taught in the synagogue. He tells us that Jesus picked up the scroll of Isaiah, and he read these verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then skipping over halfway down through verse 20, he says, And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he, that being Jesus, began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he reads from the book of Isaiah. He reads a well-known passage from the book of Isaiah that is clearly speaking about the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Messiah. And he says, today, what I just read to you has been fulfilled in their hearing. Now, what's left inferred, but fulfilled how? In him, in Jesus himself. He's the one that is fulfilling this passage. And the scripture tells us that initially they spoke very well of Jesus. They even marveled at his words. So the initial reception was very positive. But then they started asking questions. Luke tells us they said, is, this, is not this Joseph's son? That's the question. It's not in Mark, but it's in, it's in Luke, and it's there. What's the point of the thought behind that question? If this is Joseph's son, how can he be the Lord's anointed one? How can he be the Messiah. Why did they start this questioning? Uh, perhaps uh, Jesus' response to them in verse 23 of Luke chapter 4 may help us understand why they responded in this way. Uh, Luke, Luke 4 verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now, Mark told us in verse 5 of chapter 6 that Jesus could do no mighty work except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, that, that verse in and of itself kind of bothers me because the, the idea literally is Jesus was not able to do a mighty work in his hometown except do what? He healed some sick people. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty great work to me. It does. But now think about what the people in Nazareth were thinking about. What had he just done? He just brought a dead person back to life. He turned water into wine. He worked these, he healed a woman when she just touched the hem of his garment. Were they looking for healing? 
We use the word today. We're a society that lives and breathes on the ideal of sensationalism. Everything has to be more sensational. Everything has to be, well, I'm going to top this just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And where do you think Jesus would top these great miracles that he's done? Or how about in his own hometown? I think that's exactly the idea these people had. As they start to think, well, come on, Jesus. You did this there, and you did this there, and you did this there. Show us something, right? We know who you are. We know who your family is. So they start to murmuring, start saying, well, why can't you do one of those great miracles here? Prove to us who you are. We do that all the time. That's the, the mindset that came up. And, and I think we get that from what Jesus says back to them. His response to them was, uh, doubtless you will say to me, physician, heal yourself. We're told he was actually quoting a proverb. What's the point of that proverb? Physician, heal yourself. When I first read that, and I'm looking at it, I think, I don't quite understand why Jesus quoted that particular proverb. Well, what's the thought behind that proverb? Right? So the idea with the physician is, right, if you can heal others, heal yourself. What are the people in Jesus' hometown thinking about? Themselves. If you can heal, if you can work these great miracles out there, then do them here. Amongst us. Prove to us who you are. That really is why we see Jesus saying, then he, he, he responds to them and he says in, in uh, verse 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable. This is out of Luke again. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there will be many widows in Israel. Uh, excuse me. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, Jesus has just mentioned the two prophets in the Old Testament who worked miracles just like he did. In that same great miracles that he came and he worked miracles. We don't see the other prophets working miracles in that same sense. But he's just mentioned the two that did, and where did they work those miracles? Not in Israel. Not in Judea. Not in the land of God's people. Why did they not work miracles in the land of God's people? Because they did not have the faith. They did not believe that God was who he said he was and that he could do what he said he would do. So we have this passage that Jesus quotes to them that made them angry because he is saying to them, uh, in effect, you do not have faith. You're like the people in the land of Israel in the time of Elijah and Elisha. 
what we see here is Jesus taking exactly the same position that God took with the children of Israel when they were out in the wilderness and in the desert. Jesus was not going to be tested by the people of his hometown or any other place. Think back to the Exodus. You remember when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. How did he demonstrate his power and authority over all of the land, over Egypt, through all the uh, miracles, right, that were done, the plagues that were done in the land of Egypt, and then he separated the sea for them. He led them by the cloud uh, and the pillar of light. He provided food for them, the manna that came every day, right, water from the rock. God provided for his people through his miraculous power over and over and over again. But God's people in the wilderness demanded that God provide them water to drink. In Exodus chapter 17, we read that they demanded that God give them water to drink. And Moses tells us that they tested the Lord by demanding that. He said, they tested the Lord saying... So this is, the, this is where we really get... It's not just that they were demanding water. When they demanded water to drink, Moses tells us this is what they were actually doing. They were saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now let me ask you just to think about that for a second. What's the answer to that question? Yes, he's among us. How do they know that? God is invisible, right? He's a spirit. We don't actually see him. But how did they know that the Lord was among them? Because he had already done all these other things for them all the way uh, back to the land of Egypt when he brought them out of Egypt. God had demonstrated that he was exactly who he says he is and that he could do exactly what he said he would do over and over and over again. And yet they said, are you here among us or not? Give us water to drink. I would submit to you that Jesus saw through their, the murmuring of the people in Nazareth. He saw through their questions, right, that they were asking, their doubting that was there. He saw through that. He saw right to their unbelief. They did not believe that he was who he said he was, or that he could do what he had been doing. They did not have faith in him. Now, you start to think about this. Now, I, I was kind of intrigued by the idea that Jesus, the, the woman was healed just by touching the, the uh, hem of his garment. Sounds like magic to me. What we kind of think of as magic uh, in that sense. And you read sometimes in Acts where the apostles, people would be healed just by touching uh, their handkerchief or their garment. And there was that sense. And it, it gives this idea of what we think of as magic where you say a little formula you know, to do something like that and all of a sudden it'll happen. Well, God makes it very clear that that's not what was involved here. And Jesus made it very clear with a woman that that's not what was involved. In Nazareth, he could do, he did not have the ability to do any mighty works there. Now, 
that should kind of ring a bell in your mind. You could say, wait a minute, that's not right. Who is the almighty, omnipotent God who can do whatever he chooses to do? Right? God is, right? He can do that. Could Jesus do whatever Jesus chose to do? Could he have done mighty works there? Well, when you start talking about what he, power he has to do, the, question, the, the issue is not about did he have the power to do mighty works there. The issue is, did they have the faith to put their trust in him and to believe in him? And what they demonstrated was they did not have that faith. Um, so Jesus' response, pointing them back to the time of Elisha and Elijah, uh, and the miracles that they did, all of that, the crowd knew exactly what he was saying to them, right? That they were like the unbelieving Israelites in the time of Elisha and Elijah. That they had not put their faith and trust in God. In direct contrast to what we, were just, we just saw in chapter 5, the two previous uh, incidents described in chapter 5 with the, the woman who had uh, sickness for 12 years, and the uh, Jairus whose daughter died, where we see faith demonstrated uh, in those passages. So they took offense at Jesus. A, a phrase that doesn't sit very well with me because I'm just not quite sure what that means even. What does it mean to take offense at Jesus? Well, the word that is translated as took offense uh, and almost every, I think almost every of the, one of the modern English translations uses that same phrase. That's a verb that means to trip up, uh, to be caught in a trap, to stumble, to sin, and to fall away. And that's the way it's translated throughout most of the, uh, the rest of the New Testament. When we see that word being used, that's the way it's translated there. Um, it's the word that's used when Jesus talks about if your eye causes, uh, makes you to sin, cut it off. Well, makes to sin is the same word. So if your eye makes, causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So it's that idea of causing to sin. So here we're, we're being told that in some fashion they took offense, they were made to sin, because of Jesus. By Jesus. Right? It's hard for me to even say that. Uh, so I want, to just take it, I want to take it for just a moment and we'll continue to think about that. What in the world does he mean by this? Well, let me give you a couple um, of examples from Scripture that I think will help us understand this. When John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one, the coming one, the one to come, the Messiah... Remember, Jesus responded to John's disciples by opening up the book of Isaiah, by reading a passage from Isaiah, right, that talks about the blind will see, uh, the deaf will hear, uh, the prisoners will be set free. And then he tells, Jesus tells John's disciples, go back and tell him that you have seen this happening. And then he says to him, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The exact same word, offended by me. So we have the people of Nazareth who took offense at Jesus. 
we have Jesus saying, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Two completely different responses to Jesus. Paul and uh, Peter both use the same word, but in the noun form, uh, in their writings in the New Testament, uh, and they use that same word in reference to Jesus. Let me just read those to you. In Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Paul quotes a passage, again from Isaiah, speaking of God's anointed one, his Messiah. This is the passage. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, let me have a guess. Who is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense that God was laying in Zion? How about Jesus? You ever thought of Jesus as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense? But whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's go to Peter. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, Peter tells us this. Again, quoting from Isaiah, As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Uh, skipping up to verse 6, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is both the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Now, what's the idea of the stone of stumbling? This is, I mean, that's a little bit of an odd way to say it for us, but how would we say that? A stone that you stumbled on, right? You're walking down the path and you didn't see the stone and you stumbled and fell. And that's exactly the idea. So Jesus is the stumbling stone and the rock of offense. We don't ever think about Jesus in that fashion. We hardly ever talk about him in that fashion at all. Peter goes on to say they stumble because they disobey the word. They failed to put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone as well as the stumbling stone, and the rock of of offense. So, what does this tell us about the people in Nazareth? Jesus is saying, right, they um, sinned, they were made to sin by looking at Jesus and not accepting who he is. They were made to sin by saying, prove by Jesus in the sense that they said, prove to us, Jesus, who you are. They stumbled on Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They fell away 
because of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Because they did not believe. That's the first passage in this section, uh, in these verses that we have in Mark. So let's, let's go on and, and move to verse 7 uh, of Mark chapter 6. And we'll look at verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He, the he here being Jesus, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, and their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If, and if in any place, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed oil with oil many who were sick and healed them. What I want to focus on here just a little bit are the instructions, the commands that Jesus gave to his disciples in this passage. And there's essentially two sets. The first set of commands that he gave here are, he charged them just to take a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, uh, to wear sandals and not even put on two tunics, and to stay in the same house when you got there, to go, don't go from house to house to house to house. What's the point? What was the point of those commands? Well, this is one of those trips where Jesus is saying, all right, this, now's not the time to be the Boy Scout or the Girl Scout and be prepared. We don't drive, you know, from my house to work without making sure I got extra stuff in the car and I'm prepared in case something bad goes wrong. But Jesus is saying to them, go. This is a quick trip. It's a hasty trip. Don't bother to prepare. Go. And he doesn't even actually say it, but it's inferred. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. So that's the first part of this. He tells them to go and move from house to house, village, excuse me, from village to village, but not from house to house. Don't stay in the same place. Present the gospel and then move on. Present the gospel and move on. And the second part of this is, again, for us, it's, it sounds a little peculiar. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. How many of you ever had someone shake off the dust on their feet in front of you? Well, I have. Uh, It was a strange experience. I had a woman come into my office 25 years ago, and she asked for me advice about something, and I wouldn't give her the advice that she wanted, and she got up, and she was doing this, and rubbing her feet. What are you doing? I'm shaking the dust off my feet. Uh, You, and then she went on to repeat some words of cursing that I didn't quite understand. I don't, you know, I don't really remember even at this point. The, the point that I, uh, I bring to that is I've always read that passage and read about shaking the dust off the feet and felt like that was a curse. Like they were cursing these people for not believing. But that's not what the passage says. It says shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So what's the point of shaking the dust off your feet? Well, you know, the symbolism there is I'm moving on, right? I'm going to clean up, and I'm going to move on to the next destination. That's kind of there. We actually see this happen in the book of Acts. 
a couple of times, and I think it helps us maybe understand a little bit better um, what the point of it is. Um, in Acts chapter 13, uh, we have Paul teaching to the Jews in one of the cities where he's out doing his travels. It says, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict Paul by reviling him. Uh, so uh, Paul said to them, since you're... Uh, uh, I think I messed my quote up there, and I apologize. Since you're trusting, no longer trusting in, right? Since, since you trust it, the word of God, since you do, do not trust it, the word of God, uh, you set it aside, you judge yourself, and here's the point of the cast of dust off your feet, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So we're going to go turn to the Gentiles and begin to preach the word of God to the Gentiles. Again, in Acts chapter 18, we see the same kind of thing happening where the Jews, Paul goes to the Jews as he always did, proclaims his word, and they reject him. And they reject the word. And it says, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. The act of shaking the dust off was not a curse, condemning or judging, but a testimony to who? To the people who refused to believe. It was a testimony, a warning to the people who refused to believe uh, that they were taking their lives in their own hands. They did not want eternal life. Um, so I think we can note here that when the gospel is heard and rejected, there's a bit of a, a element here that says, move on, go, go on, preach it to the next person. Now, again, I've kind of struggled with it, and, and don't get me wrong, the scriptures are clear as a bell. God continues to preach the gospel, the good news, to all of us until judgment comes. And he wants all of us to repent and to turn to him and put our faith and our trust in him. But when someone has made the decision to reject the gospel, we need to move on and continue to present the gospel to other people. It's not that we, we quit saying it, and we certainly don't curse them and say, you're judged, you're condemned at this point, because what, what is the truth there? They already are because they've refused to believe. I say that because we cannot force or make people to believe in the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we have a really hard time with that, especially with our families, with our hometown. I want those people to be saved more than anything else. And by golly, I'm going to find a way to make that happen, to force that to make it happen. And what we have here is, is just at least some direction from Jesus that what we do is proclaim the gospel and we let him do his work and we let the word of God do its work. We don't force it. We don't make it happen. Uh, God doesn't give up on us. He warns us not only is the good news presented, but part of the good news is the bad news. If you reject the good news, judgment is coming. Absolutely 
certain. If you reject the good news, judgment is coming. All right, let's move quickly. I don't even have a clue how long I've been here, Mike. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Mark chapter 16, chapter 6, verses 14 through 19. This is a, a lot of verses, but we'll talk about it just briefly. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. He heard about Jesus, right? Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And he said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately he sent a king. The king sent an executioner with his orders to bring John's head. He went out and beheaded him in the prison uh, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to the mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So most of this passage is just a telling us what happened to John the Baptist, how John the Baptist uh, wound up uh, being killed by Herod. But that's not really the point of why that passage is in here in this process. What's the point of this? Herod heard about what Jesus had been doing. He heard about all these miracles, all these great teachings, all these great people that were following him, and Herod was curious. The people were saying, well, maybe he's Elijah, maybe he's a, uh, Elisha, maybe he's a great prophet of God. And, and um, they were saying, it's John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead. And Herod's, you know, his, Herod said, well, John, I beheaded. Has he been raised? Uh, and Luke tells us that he, 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 he kind of gives it this idea. I know I beheaded John the Baptist. Who is this? So, this, so the issue here is not how John died, but what Herod thought about Jesus. And what Herod thought about Jesus was he was curious. Really, we learn uh, a little bit later in Luke that um, when Jesus uh, had been before Pilate, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, uh, to be in front of him, and, and, and so Herod, and, and, and Luke, he picks that up in chapter 23, says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, to see Jesus, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some great sign done by him. What did Herod want from Jesus? 
Work me a miracle. I want to see something great. That's exactly what Herod wanted from Jesus. You did all this stuff everywhere else, just like the people in Jesus' hometown. He wanted Jesus to do something miraculous, sensational. Jesus did not even respond to Herod's questions there and in that context. Jesus goes to his hometown. They're offended by him. He cannot do any mighty work in his hometown. Jesus sends out the 12 to go out and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And he tells them, if people won't listen, if they won't believe, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them and go on to the next town. Herod wants to see Jesus because he's curious. He wants to see a miracle. He wants to see something great. What do these three passages have in common with each other? What do they mean to us? Well, let me go back to the questions that the people in Jesus' hometown asked. Where did this man get these things? Where did Jesus get these things, being these teachings that he's been teaching? What's the answer to that question? From God, from God Almighty. What is the wisdom given to him? Where did he get all this wisdom? What's the answer? From God. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, uh, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Well, the answer to those questions is right. This is the carpenter. He is the brother of James, Joseph, and Simon. His sisters are here with us. Is this not Joseph's son? What's the answer? Trick question. That's a hard question, isn't it? What, what, what? He was Joseph, Joseph's adopted son in one sense, but is he Joseph's son? No. He is who? The son of God. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you, we have to answer those questions. You have to answer those questions. Who is Jesus? One of the things that I'm astounded by today uh, in our society, in our work, we see the same exact things happening as everybody else in our country. We see, we hear the same exact words being spoken by people. But our responses are not the same people of Nazareth were given the gospel message. Their response was completely different than the woman at the well and the people from Samaria. You remember them? Right? The woman said, this man has told me everything that I've ever done. He doesn't work a great miracle in front of him. And they come, they listen to Jesus, and what do they declare about Jesus? He is the Savior of the world. The Messiah. 
Mark, through the leading and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has presented to us Jesus, who he is, what he did. We have to respond. The question is, do you believe that he is who he said he was and that he can do what he said he would do? And let's get right down to it. He said he was the son of God and that he could save us from our sins and give us eternal life. If you don't believe that, you've taken offense at Jesus because it all turns on Jesus. That's all. He is the stone upon which we stand, the rock upon which we stand, the cornerstone, or he is the stone upon which we stumble and fall and are crushed. What do you believe in Jesus, about Jesus? Have you taken offense at him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It is so clear. And you call us to a decision to put our trust and our faith in you, to believe that you are exactly who you say you are and that you sent your son to live for us, to suffer for us, to die for us so that we might be saved. May we believe the good news and put our trust in you.